Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. In today's podcast, I have Matt State and John Keeley joining me for a discussion on the next evolution of martial arts. We're on to a brand new year, so this is always a good time to reflect and look at how we're going to evolve our training into the future. If you'd like to support the show or just get more content, I encourage you to take a look at the Spirit Aikido online program. We're almost at 400 videos now in the program with a lot of interesting content. I'm currently sharing some material which crosses over some content from the standing grappling world, like catch wrestling, to allow good controls and easy entries into control positions. My profound thanks to those who have subscribed to the program and those who have contributed to the PayPal tip jar. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Welcome back to Modern Aikido's podcast. Uh, I've got a great, a great discussion headed for us today. Uh, my guests are Matt State, who's back. He's, uh, we've talked with him a number of times. I'm always thrilled to, to chat with Matt. He's always got great things to say. And John Keeley, who you may remember from, uh, I believe, my last podcast, we talk about, talked about Aikido Renaissance and how Aikido is kind of going through a, a, a shift in its focus and, and change as times are evolving. And that's kind of the nature of our discussion today is not just Aikido evolving and changing, but the martial arts in general evolving and changing. Um, uh, the, the last COVID years have brought a lot of strife to dojos. A lot of them have shut down. A lot of them have lost their students. It would be easy to, to blame the loss of students and the loss of these dojos or, or interest in martial arts purely on that. But now that a lot of that COVID has, has left and, and people are left wondering, okay, I want to get physical. I want to train. I may be interested in defending myself. Now they're taking another look at the martial arts realm which is different now than it was five years ago or different than it was 10 years ago. And we as instructors or we as, as experienced martial artists, I believe have an obligation to, to take into consideration what prospective students may be looking for in an art, maybe looking for in a dojo or in instructors and how we can let our art evolve to help the arts grow and not let them die off because we were holding on to a vision of what martial arts was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, so I'm very excited to have both of the, both of these gentlemen with me today. Uh, welcome back, guys. Uh, it's great to have you here. I get too excited. <laughs> um, yeah, so really the old, overall theme is kind of a renaissance in martial arts training. And I, I think it's not like martial arts training has been the same for the last 50, 80 years. And now in the last two or three, it's changing. I think it has gone through many stages of change that can go back to, uh, you know, what it was like in the fifties or sixties. And you look at the, uh, the change that Bruce Lee brought with his, what he did with his own art. He was uh, a Wing Chun, primarily Wing Chun background and said, you know what, this is not, this does not fit what I want it to do. I need to evolve it. I need to, I need to go. I want more. I want to, I want to take from other sources and compose, compose an art that I feel works extraordinarily well. That was one evolution. Another one, what came on the, on the heels of the um, original UFC, where the theory was that arts were there to test itself against one another. Uh, and prove which one was best. It was a marketing st stroke of marketing genius of what how that turned out. But the idea that it took arts that were training in isolation and then put them together to face each other 
I think fundamentally changed how martial arts was looked at. It took away the art that was dealing with uh, training its students in isolation, thinking that it was a, a supremely powerful art only to have kind of a reality check come into play. And I think the following evolution came when the YouTube wave of seeing how martial artists train, how they teach, what their techniques are shared on video was like a bright light that shone, uh, that kind of amped up the attention that the original kind of UFC started to give martial arts. And now we're dealing with the wave after that. And now what happens? How do we evolve our martial art, how we train, how we teach? And I think that's one that's overlooked is the, the technology of teaching and, and effectively teaching students to have competent and, and practical skills fairly quickly. Um, so where, where would you like to launch with, with this one? That's kind of the overarching uh, topic of of how the how the martial arts are evolving and a good way for us to accommodate that evolution maybe even spark some of that evolution to go farther faster rather than having an evolving art drag us along how about we become more of the drivers for it to go where it's kind of headed um matt what do you think about kind of my overall description have you noticed kind of similar things with um, yeah, well, there's always evolutions with everything, isn't there? And there has to be. Uh, um, I co-wrote a book uh, uh, just before lockdown um, talking about this very thing and the technolog uh, technological side of it. And that's a real um, interesting point because it's, it does a number of things. Number one, it presents martial arts in a way that you don't actually have to have any skill or understanding or knowledge or previous experience or anything, and you can suddenly be an expert. Um, we're all seeing that across social media, you know, these um, keyboard warriors and things they've been they've been christened. But we see that a lot. Everybody has an opinion now, whether it's valid or not. And that's you know, that I think is important because so many people are afraid to put themselves out there because of the criticism, whereas others are pushing themselves forwards, but don't necessarily deserve, I think, the exposure that they're getting sometimes. So there's definitely that side to it. But then also the, the there's real positive sides in, in the sense of, as you, as you said, about the technology for teaching. We are in a position now where we can sit in different parts of the world and have a conversation like this, which mm -hmm. means we can teach like this live in different parts of the world. Um, you know, we can gain knowledge from people from different parts of the world instantly. It's I mean, that's such an incredible gift that um, I think a lot of the younger generation, the, the 30 plus, sort of plus um, younger, rather, that haven't lived in a world pre-internet. I don't think they appreciate just what a phenomenal thing that is. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, we 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 all, I'm sure, remember the the way we used to do things before YouTube, before the internet, and before um, we had this capability. So um, it, it can be an extraordinary gift, but in the same vein, I, I think it, it can have some quite serious detrimental effects to martial arts as a whole. But hey, that's part of the discussion, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, the, John, your thoughts? You, you both do it, don't you? You, you both <laughs> put out um, yeah, um, educational videos. Uh, training videos you've got over 300 Tristan <laughs> yeah they're, they're all out there people can watch and learn but what they're not doing is watching and practicing unless they actually take what you put out there 
mm-hmm. and take that as as the demonstration phase of, of teaching and then go and practice it with with a partner and things like that so so it is out there um unfortunately and i, and I think matt will, will attest this in, in this country we have an awful lot of snake oil salesmen who are out there making a <laughs> lot of money stopping mm-hmm. you know who i'm talking about specifically <laughs> one um they're, they're out there and they're selling this this product which mm-hmm. is not a great product um and the, the parents who don't know any better are, are sending their kids, you know. And if you if you run your your martial arts center as a business, that everybody goes elsewhere because that's where everybody goes. Um, and and that has become a problem. And it is quite a quick fix, you know. You're seeing very 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 young black belts who, who who literally can't fight their way out of a paper bag. But they this is what they want. They want the badge. They want the participation trophy. And this is the world we're in now, where, whereas you know, when we went through it, you had to fight tooth and nail, blood, sweat and tears before you got your next level. We're now looking at people who just go, ha, ah, you turned up and you, yeah, you, you're you standing up the right way and you've got the right outfit on, have had your trophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is a problem where we've got this going on out there in the world. Yeah, it's, um, and it's the same in the schools. It's the same, yeah, the, the participation trophy. Yeah. I think we've got to be I think we've got to be very cautious in any discussion like this that we don't just sound like a bunch of miserable old forts lamenting days <laughs> gone by um because that is very easy to do isn't it and, yeah, yeah. And, and I feel your pain John I really do and I agree with uh, a lot of what you say absolutely because it is a real concern these days um but our job I think is 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 to not look at it from that point of view and say right well you know there's a place for McDojos because there's a place for why it was named McDojo's. There's a there's a real hunger for fast food. There's a real hunger for fast everything now. So, you know, it fulfills a need. If the need wasn't there, they wouldn't be successful. So we have to establish that and just say, right, fine, okay. We understand that that's the modern world that we live in. The question is, how do we, you know, how do we present what we do in a way where it's not just palatable uh, and coexist, but how does it how does it stand out? How does it shine? How does it actually stand above? these mcdojos for want of a better description and we can make that obvious to people who don't actually know what they're looking at because like you said for most most parents what they actually look at is do the classes suit my schedule and is it close enough to get to mm-hmm. um you know and, and and what's the what's the cost they don't care about your lineage or your history or where the art came from they they don't care about any of that so so we have to acknowledge that if we're ever going to um create a world where traditional I, I use the word traditional but you you know what i mean um where traditional established arts are actually going to get a really solid foothold and stay you know and stay in the game because that's i think the problem isn't it is that if we don't find some ways to evolve if traditional arts don't evolve they're not going to be in the game that it's as simple as that they will they will mm-hmm. just end up extinct and obsolete mm-hmm. you know and I, i've got this question maybe it's maybe the the overall theme in over in the UK may be a little bit different here in the US, but I get the feeling like one of the criteria that people will often use is, okay, if I go study this art, is it generally useful or is it too hyper-specialized into, into, a, into skills that I don't think are going to be very practical? Mm. Um, 
most of the criticisms that I've heard people voice about why, okay, why, why wouldn't I consider go, going and learning Taekwondo or why wouldn't I go concerning uh, learn Shotokan karate or, you know, pick, pick in just about any martial art. And they say, well, they do this particular specialty really well, but there's a lot of stuff that they miss. And I want, I want enough sampling of the stuff that they miss that I, that's not really the art for me. And I think this is where um, the, the newest stage of arts that I think are, have gotten really popular are the combatives, um, where it's, you know, the urban survival. Um, it's almost like a Krav Maga 2.0 of taking, taking the, you know, you're in a real fight. In, in, they're kind of catering to the idea that, okay, what do most people think a fight is? They think it's a bar fight. They think it's a full-on assault or a, or a duel, a fist fight out, out in a street. And they say, okay, we're going to train you for that. So we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to show you material that is go, you know, dial it up to 11 and just pound as hard as possible with the hardest things, which in my opinion, that is one realm that a martial artist needs to be able to understand and to be able to navigate. But that's not what most people are going to encounter in terms of basic violence. It's probably going to be low to mid-level uh, and going uncorking somebody on somebody with lethal or nearly lethal hand-to-hand -hand technique may not be appropriate for that. So I know the last uh, podcast that John and I did, we got to talking about this, about how at least the art that we do, Aikido is scalable so that you aren't using overwhelming force or inappropriate levels of force for something that is a moderate threat to you or a danger to you. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe this is difficult to penetrate when you have, you know, lay people who are saying, well, maybe I should take up a martial art. I want the biggest, baddest thing in the world. And, uh, you know, the, the most dangerous art is the one I want to learn. Mm -hmm. Is that a factor when you consider, okay, who are you trying to appeal to or, or who, what is the message that's going to resonate with the person who says, I will dedicate, you know, three, four, five hours a week to my training, but I want to choose an art that doesn't have these huge gaping holes in it. Uh, well, you for know? me, I think there are three, there are three elements to what you just said that I think are valid to what the conversation. Number one is that every art that you mentioned and every art besides, they mm -hmm. all will tell you that they are, a self-defense art and that's what they mm -hmm. practice and for the majority of cases you know that's where they came from and that is their mm -hmm. history and that's you know and they belong in that category however mm -hmm. and this brings us to the second point we all know that to get the real benefits from the training you have to go through the grinder you have to go through the mill mm -hmm. you have to put yourself into very very uncomfortable situations to grow physically and mentally now we know this right mm -hmm. that's very hard to do with modern students and so that's what makes that's what makes it unreal. Not so. So it's not the system that isn't real. It's the training that the people go through. I think is is one of the big issues. Mm -hmm. And then the third part of this is that let's be real. Once you get to a certain age in life, your self defense training for martial arts isn't some bad guy on the street. It's obesity. It's diabetes. It's heart disease. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's getting your fat ass off the couch. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, those Amen are the, that. Yeah, well, that's it. And I think that's, you know, that's something that needs to be sort of acknowledged and addressed. You know, when you're 20, you want a different thing from your martial arts than you do when you're 40 or 50. Mm -hmm. And and that's, uh, you know, that's something, again, we, we can't all be a one size fits all. And that's fundamentally 
one of the key points, isn't it? It's, it's you know, we're not a one size fits all. We never want to be. And we couldn't if we tried. So it's it's addressing that as well. I mean, I, I, again, John, I'm sure you yourself have seen over the years the the way that students train and want to train and can be trained has changed dramatically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, it's um i think certainly tris and i spoke about it last time if you go back to the, the way that we were all originally trained if when we first started this journey if we if we went down that route we'd all be in court for abuse i'm sure because mm. i used to be clouted routinely by sensei and and you know punishment calisthenics all these sort of things that that just don't exist anymore because if they did we would never see anybody again they would mm -hmm. turn up one lesson and then they'd be gone and that's it. We'd, we'd never see them. Mm -hmm. So we have to cater to 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 the demands of of what people want. And, and what people want is to turn up, have some good training, and, and leave having learned something. But but certainly, I mean, you you hit the nail right on the head, Matt. With the what do people look for in a martial art? Is it local? <laughs> is it does it fit in with my schedule? Do, do, all, all those things are, are a big factor, aren't they? Um, mm. And if you find something that you quite like, you don't have to love it quite like, and it's just down the road, you're going to possibly be a member of that to something you love, which is half hour drive away. Mm. And, and because we have to fit into people's lifestyles, and certainly something we spoke about last time, this is people's hobbies. You know, mm. we, we, we are training people in a hobby we're not training them to go and invade you know, Helmand province next week. Mm -hmm. Well, not all the time anyway. Um, but so, so it is a hobby. So we have to give them something that they enjoy. The, uh, certainly I've had people come to me for years and years and, and you both will have as well saying, I want to do a martial art. What should I do? Mm. And the first question should be, well, what do you want out of it? Do you want to get fit and healthy? Do you want to defend yourself? Do you want to, to yeah, do you, do you want to put on ancient Japanese clothing uh, and and wave you know bamboo sticks around? Whatever, it's what they want out of it, isn't it? And do they want the self defence? And and yeah, with the with the current news in the UK, we've just had two 16 year olds sent to prison for for a horrific murder, mm. which probably means people are going to be knocking on Matt's door, going, D -d 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 I need to learn how to defend myself because there's murderers out there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, literally, literally, uh, two or three days ago, there were two teenage kids murdered right on the doorstep of where I used to live until a few years ago. Um, yeah, so that is very much the case, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and that is the advertising for, for, for your centre, isn't it, Matt? That, that... No. No, oh, sorry, sorry, John. Um, I had to say no then quite emphatically because um, because I have actually seen instructors do that. There's been a terrible tragedy in their local community and they've gone, join our club and you'll never get stabbed again. You know, that kind of nonsense. And I'm really highly against that because it's... But it um, makes people look for self-defense. It reminds them. So okay, not necessarily yeah, yeah. using it as an advertising ploy. That would be quite bad. Um, yeah, but actually, yeah. it does actually remind people that there are, yeah. you know, bad people out there and when we have yeah. these horrific things people do go looking for you know the self-defense again you know, i found the same thing because I, looking for. here i'm i'm in a my dojo's in a suburb of minneapolis and uh i don't know if you guys are keeping up on what minneapolis has been going through the last couple of years but violence is just skyrocketing here mm -hmm. and in one of the groups that i i participate in <clears throat> there was a, a slightly older woman that was had an attempted carjacking and uh, she did a great job of, of fighting them off. 
um, not having her car stolen. Uh, she had <clears throat> a few self-defense classes when she was younger, but she had <clears throat> she had kind of the heart of the lion. And but her going through that made the group that that she, that we both are in aware of. My God, this could happen to anybody. And I they suddenly came to me and said, "Hey, Tristan, could you teach us about how to deal with you know a carjacking?" And so you know I I talked to my one of my law law enforcement officer friends. I said, "Hey, would you mind coming in and we can we can teach a class on how to." prepare yourself. And most of it wasn't, you know, how do you fight them off when somebody's at the door, you know, trying to pull you out or what have you. Most of it's in how building awareness and those other things. But regardless of what we taught, that was the interest. The interest was this happened to somebody. I want, I don't want to be helpless. What can I do to, to, you know, lessen my odds? What, how do I learn about this? Um, so it, it does act as kind of that motivator. Um, but I do want to drill down on, on Matt's point number two, which I think was really fantastic. And that is, and this is what I took away from it, because I noticed this is students come into to my dojo over the years. They all come in on a different place. Some of them are younger and are capable of more athletics. Some are older and not. Some are, they reel at the idea of, of getting hands put on them or putting hands on other people. They all have a slightly different starting point. And I view that it's my challenge as an instructor to make sure that whatever experience they have there is nourishing, that they walk out feeling more empowered and capable. But I have to realize I can't, for example, theme my class at being a, let's say we all go 80% intensity and we are kind of bruising each other up, but not, not really getting injured. And you have somebody comes in and looks at that and goes, oh, there's no way I can handle this. And there's no way that I would, that I want this. But you don't also want to shift the class down to that 20% level where you're going so soft and gentle that you're attracting people. Say, oh yeah, I could, I could handle this. And then you take people that are a little bit more advanced or a little bit more athletic and going, this isn't enough. I, I need, I need more. The idea that you, you have an experience where you can take people and gradually ramp them up into, we're going to get you to the point where you're comfortable with going 80% intensity speed. You're used to getting hit. You're used to getting grabbed. You're used to getting thrown around. You're used to getting people piling on top of you, but you're not afraid because you've been acclimated to it. So I think it's, I, I view that that is one of the biggest challenges is of running a dojo that I've seen over the 12 years that I've been doing it is you don't want to alienate people who are just kind of getting their feet wet and they're maybe a little timid. They're, they're not quite ready for, you know, uh, more intensity, but I've seen those people, if they stick with it and you can give them a, a good experience, one that they can learn from, they feel more confident, they'll get stronger. They'll get more interested in, Hey, let's bump the intensity up a little bit. This is a little bit easy now. Okay. All right. Let's, let's bump it up. And, and you, you're basically managing their growth. You're coaching them up to being able to handle the type of fire uh, that they may be put into. But it's, it's a gradual process. You can't say you're going to have this by Friday. You know. Um, so how about you guys? You notice kind of the same thing with a, a wide variety of students that come in with different backgrounds and capabilities, and you've got to kind of tune things to them to let them grow? Certainly, I think how things have changed in the martial art training world for the better over the past mm, 40 years, 40 something years, um, it, it's not a, a one size fits all anymore. 
Okay, mm -hmm. we, we now cater to individuals rather than, uh, yeah, everybody lined up doing exactly the same thing. We now have to cater to individuals. It, it's part of the, the teaching and the learning cycle. So what we do is we, we, we can almost make bespoke training packages within a class. Mm -hmm. This person needs this, this person needs this. So we, we, we have to now. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the same across the whole educational system. Yeah, we now no longer have everybody does exactly the same thing at exactly the same speed. We now recognise that people are individual and they have different learning styles and speeds and abilities and all this sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. the job of the instructor is, is to, to work the class so that everybody works at their own pace. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And we push them, we push them, we push them a little bit. But that's certainly how a, a class run. Um, I was when I was teaching Sambo, when we had the, the gym open, I, I had one one lady who came and, and all she did for most of the session for, for about three or four weeks was just practice ukemi, practice the rolls, the breakfalls. And she loved it. She absolutely loved it. And then she got to the point where she was really good at it. And she said, right, I'm now ready to move on. And that's the first time I've ever had anybody for, for three sessions do nothing but breakfalls. But she just... Her mind was, I want to get this right before I go to the next step. And a lot of people. That's are, a great student right there. Oh, that is amazing. an outstanding student. Yeah. And she was just like, I know. Can you, I'll just go take myself off into the corner and I'll roll around on my own. And every so often I went over and go, okay, do this, do this. Yeah, it's good enough. But most, <laughs> most of them were young lads. It's Sambo, remember. Most mm -hmm. of them were young lads who just wanted to smash each other <laughs> into the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, yeah, they um, you you wince, don't you, because they haven't actually trained in their ukemi, and now they're they're hitting the floor with elbows and things sticking out. Um, but what I had to do was section the class up, even if it was in my head, and then pair people off together. So these two want to smash each other into the floor, and funny enough, they knew each other, they're friends, and so this is where we are now. We are now into sectioning, and and I'm sure both of you do it all the time. Every class you are you know, breaking it up rather than, right, everybody in the line, we're all going to do exactly the same thing for the next hour and a half. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit contentious here when I say this, because um, we live in a world of inclusivity where everything should be accessible by everyone. And I actually don't believe that when it comes to martial arts. I think, I think high level martial arts should be something to aspire to and should be something that not everyone can attain. Um, so, you know, with regards to my club, my students, when I go out to seminars, whatever it is, I think I, I always say the same thing. Not everyone can be a black belt, but everyone can have a black belt mentality. You can train with that, you know, with, with that level. And, and then you just work to your ability. Right. So let's be honest. We've all had students that are great people and nobody's knocking that, but they haven't quite got the physicality. You know, it's not natural for them and they've got to work really, really, really hard. And then 10, 15 years down the line, they're actually superb martial artists, but my God, they had to work at it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you've got others that come in and and, they, and they've got a natural movement. They've got natural, natural physicality. But because of that, quite often, there's an arrogance that comes with it um, and an attitude, you know, and, and sometimes you can't get past that. And so they drop by the wayside a year or two down the road, if, if, if that long. Um, and then occasionally you'll bump into them and, oh, yeah, well, I was training there and then I went training there and then I went training there and... Um, and there isn't that sort of that commitment to the journey, if you like. So these are all elements of it. And it's it's one of those where I think to, to, to try and be fully inclusive, again, you, 
it's something that you can't really do. Um, mm. But I think we absolutely need to appreciate that everybody has a different way of getting to the destination. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's really the point, isn't it? It's that is that it's a it's a different journey for everybody. And that's I think that's what separates a good instructor from an instructor is being able to very quickly understand what that person needs to be able to transmit that information. Uh, I think that's the skill of a great instructor. And I think that's that's where it stands out. And again, that comes back to the core what we're talking about, isn't it? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we for us to be um, good at what we do, for us to represent our art, you know, we need to be able to transmit that information, not just to the student in the room, but to schools, local communities, parents, um, press, the wider social media world. You know, we need to be able to be advocates for what we're teaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and boy, I really like that that uh, you mentioned it that way. And as you were talking about that, it, it, I, a scenario kind of comes to mind of what I deal with fairly regularly, where you get two, two of my students, one is more experienced than the other, one's much bigger than the other. And now do you say, well, at what intensity level do you two train? But what I found is that you can have, you can instruct both of them to work on things they both need when they're working together. You, you don't necessarily have a mismatch there. You get a smaller, say a smaller, less experienced student against somebody who's bigger and more experienced. You say, now's the time for you to practice your intensity. You're going to need to be intense if you're going to, if you're going to take on somebody that's much bigger than you are. This is your opportunity to learn that. So you have them practice on when you need to call on that intensity, it, it should be there. So you have them practice that. On the other side, you have the person who's bigger or more experienced say, now you get somebody who's smaller. You can't take a smaller person for granted, but they're attacking you with intensity. Here's your chance to remain calm. Don't reflect their intensity back on them by you becoming intense and using more than you need. Now you get this mismatch even though their goals are, are asymmetric, but they can train against one another effectively with what we want to do, which is to be in control, use what you need to, to get the job done, but no more. Um, and that, that transposes to facing somebody that is your size who's using a lot of intensity. You don't want to ramp up and, and necessarily try to match their intensity. They may be more athletic than you or younger, uh, more vibrant. You want to use that calm control to be able to match that. So I've found that that's a, a really good, it's like an instructor's challenge. All right, how do you coach these two to work together when there, when there's some kind of a mismatch, skill mismatch, size mismatch, age mismatch, maybe even it's a mismatch. Um, you know, I've currently got a student that's had both hips replaced. So he's somewhat mobile, but has some limitations. Like, okay, how are you gonna be effective working within your limitation set? Let's focus on not necessarily what works for me and my level of athletics, but his level of ability. And uh, I, I view those as some of the most satisfying instructor challenges to say, I want to make you effective at what you may not even have a left arm. You got one arm to deal with, but you still have to survive. How are you going to do it? Let's work on work giving you things that are going to work for you. Um, yeah, I think I think you've just you've just absolutely nailed one of the pivotal key things I think in this conversation because we're we're sort of we've come into this about how can we talk about sort of martial arts and and, and in a way where it, it focuses on the outside of it and the truth of it is 
I'm an instructor and I've been an instructor for many years, and I'm sure you guys are probably the same. I'm still an instructor, not because of the financial benefits, because trust me, I can earn a lot more doing other things. Um, oh, yeah. Right. But it's those moments when you have a student and they progress within themselves and they've overcome something within themselves. Something is different about them and you've helped them to to take that step. And those are the moments. Uh, you know, it's not about beating mm -hmm. somebody up. It's not about um being a ufc champion all it is but but for the most people it's not about that it's those moments the ones you've just identified like you just said over that chat mm -hmm. i i i have two two things that spring to mind that um i i did some training for the rnib which is the royal national institute for the blind um, and i actually did um three or four aikido sessions for vision impaired people completely blind and mm -hmm. As an instructor, you, you would appreciate this. Suddenly you realize, oh no, I now can't demonstrate because how do we teach? We demonstrate, we explain, go away and practice. Mm -hmm. I can demonstrate till the cows come home. They're not seeing it. I now, you now have to rethink. And it was so satisfying watching the guys and girls get it from, from you know, and you could see the, the, the gestalt moments, as they call it, the light bulb moments going on. Ah, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, because I was now having to talk them through techniques and obviously with that sort of audience you're not doing punches to the face because you're doing it's an awful lot of grabs and things like that that was amazing absolutely amazing and then um a few years later i i, I did some um medieval sword fighting classes with an um an autistic youth club down in brighton mm -hmm. um and when, when you get a group like that together you realize why it's called a spectrum because because you've got a whole range here fantastic absolutely fantastic but th this is something it's, it should be inclusive there, there shouldn't be we shouldn't ever say no you can't do it because it's all about the attitude of, of, of the student isn't it okay mm -hmm. i may only have one arm but i still want to come in and do it right you're in Boof, you know and and that is what's the rewarding it's the attitude of the student um when you said matt about someone who comes in who's not they're not physically physically literate should we say but they've got the attitude these are, are are the students that that make us fly as instructors aren't they these are the ones the ones that come in they've just got the right attitude but they haven't got the skill set and it's all about taking them on that journey to get that to get it's a longer journey maybe they are so much better than the people that come in who are physical but they haven't got the right attitude i would rather have a whole class of people who are N not that great, but they've got the right attitude than, than the ones that are coming and go, yeah, I can do this. It, 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 it's all about the attitude of the student. Sometimes it's up to us to change that attitude. Um, sometimes, yeah. Um, and, and, and like you say, these are the people that come in and go out and, and yeah, they're off, they're off to their next um, martial arts session, <laughs> whatever it is. Didn't fancy that, did that, did that. Um, but it is all about the attitude, and, and that, as instructors, this is what why we do it. Why we do it? It's getting it's getting the people who are not necessarily physically literate to a point, and that is the satisfying bit. That is the great bit of being an instructor, I think. Yeah, I wanted to add to this too because as you were talking about it, I was thinking about some of the things that I've done to try to fill some of the holes that I felt were in the art that that I have and the, the learning that I've gotten. And, and I see this as a, as a hole that most martial arts have, almost all of them. 
and that is, and they all, all give lip service to to uh, situational awareness, and you know, keep an eye on what's going on around you. They'll everybody will say that to a person, but very few of them actually try to reinforce that within within practice. And I found that it's very hard to do it with scenarios and stuff because anything you do in a dojo seems so fake. You 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 have a firm handle of you're well familiar with the environment. You're well familiar with every person in there. And you're expecting people to act, which is another tall order. <laughs> um, but I had a student come to me uh, about a year ago and he said, you know, I was out riding a bike with my daughter and this guy came up to us as we were getting water and he said something just my instinct just something isn't right i just didn't feel it was right but he said you know i maneuvered so i was standing on the other side of, of my bicycle from him i was standing but he was in between and he said well where's the gas station or whatever and i said I, and i didn't turn my head so that he was now behind me i couldn't see him i kept him in front of me and i pointed it's right down the road so i kept him in my vision all of these things were things that, that i'd worked in but i was happy to hear that th there was no technique used there was no I mean, physical technique. There was no altercation. Maybe he avoided an alter, a physical alter, altercation because he he didn't give this guy his back, or he you know he kept his eye on him. But the idea that as we look at an art, it's more than just about the grabs, the throws, the techniques, the locks, the the physical things. It's about how you can set up to not have to use those unless you've made a serious error. But how do you not make the serious errors? What are the good fundamentals that you do to make it so that you shouldn't have to use those things? Um, you've made it difficult for that person to get an advantage position over you. And I think that uh, weaving these things into training, because I don't like having long lectures on the mat where you have people, they're not doing reps, things like that, but you want to seed in these little ideas. You always want to keep your eyes on somebody. You don't want to have them behind you or where you can't see them. Uh, you want to have make it difficult for them to approach you, things like this. I think a lot of martial arts, and it doesn't matter which one, could benefit from trying to do this better. Don't just make your students good fighters. Make them good survivors by bringing those types of skills in and filling that hole that's that's there. I, um, I would I would actually go one further and say make them good people. Um, right. You know, that's one of the problems I think with a lot of, I'm going to be careful I say this, but that's one of the problems I see with a lot of combat orientated things these days is they're essentially training human pit bulls. Um, mm -hmm. And that's fine. Don't get me wrong. That's fine. But one of the things I think we lack these days is that we have a responsibility as instructors um, as to who we give knowledge to and what knowledge we give them. Um, and I know in the, I know in the technical world, that's a hard thing to do and not only possible and, um, you know, I appreciate that. But I also think that, you know, if we're going to teach somebody how to break somebody for want of a better word, then we should also be trying to instill in them the ability to make the right choice when the time comes. Mm -hmm. um, so that goes into what you were saying with the soft skills and things, because I think that's really important. You know, how many times have you seen these young guys that have done a bit of MMA or what have you, and they're all puffed up and they've got tats up the side of their neck and they're very gruff in their attitude. And, and you're like, do you know what? I'm not surprised that you get into fights sometimes, you know? <laughs> um, so, and I think, so I, you know, I think that is part of the whole. It, it, when you're talking about soft skills and things, if you're a sport oriented school, which lots of schools are, 
that's not part of their remit. That's not part of what they're signed up to do. You know, they are a uh, they are a, a, a rule based set system for combat, sport orientated, and that's not the same thing. And so there's an awful lot of that. And so there's no way that they could realistically teach soft skills, communication, conflict management, um, you know, body language, all of those things that are very relevant in martial arts overall, because what they teach is a sport. So um, so I get what you're saying, but that's that an awful lot of clubs can't accommodate that and don't want to. So how do we? Yeah, how, that's I mean, that's really fundamentally back to the original question, isn't it? Is how do we fold in, you know, enough from different parts of things to make it whole? Yeah, I, I think if if they're a sport-based club who are promoting themselves as also self-defence, then they need <coughs> to put in the conflict management side of things. They need to have that in. Otherwise, they're not self-defence. Otherwise, they're just, you know, doing the sport on the street. <laughs> um so they need this, this in there. They also need to um, teach, certainly in the UK, use of force law, use of force legislation, so people know, because mm -hmm. you know, I, I've known some very highly skilled martial artists who don't know what they can and can't do under law. So what happens when it kicks off in front of them? They freeze. Oh, mm -hmm. I don't want to get into trouble because they haven't got that working knowledge of what they are can and can't do in, in the UK because they've always had that, I once had it described to me as all the different fights in a fight. There is the actual physical fight, then there's the fight in your head that you've got to win. There's mm -hmm. the fight in their head <laughs> that they've got to win to win. It's it. but there's also the fight afterwards with with the legal system, and that is in there as well. I don't want to get into trouble. Well, yeah, if you know what if you know what you can and can't do under law. You kind of bypass that. It's kind of a filter that you you run everything through. So any anybody who is proposing to teach any sort of self defence needs to have the conflict management, needs to have the legislation, the, all all part of their syllabus that they teach. Now um, wait a minute. You're saying that just having the phrase "better be better to be tried by twelve than carried by six is not sufficient to no hell no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can try it. That's crazy can. talk. But... <laughs> Um, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because one of the things that just makes me shake my head is how many quote unquote traditional martial artists, when they get frustrated, they turn to sport fighting for the answers of how do I fill in the holes of my art? And I, I admire sport fighters for what they, what they do. Their skills are, are very well tuned to exactly what they're, what they are meant for, but merely being able to be more intense in your violence and more effective in applying force and, and violence upon another person omits everything you just talked about. And this is where I, I personally feel that looking to professionals who deal with violence as part of their job is a much better, uh, a much better model to look to for how do they solve the problem of, uh, uh, reasonable use of force when it needs to happen, uh, appropriate level of response, consideration for the location, for your innocent people, for yourself, for your attacker, for, you know, all these other things that a sport fighter never has to consider even once. Um, 
even down to, you know, and I've heard a lot of the arguments about, well, real violence isn't like sport violence because of the rules. I could go on for two hours about the differences that have nothing to do with a rule set, that have nothing to do with strikes that aren't allowed or attacks that aren't allowed. The differences are, are major without even considering any of those things. Um, and so I, it seems to me like the, the, if you call it the art of the future or where arts and kind of this is one of the topics I want to bring up is that arts seem to be merging together. Martial artists are, are taking from like Bruce Lee did. They're taking from other arts to gather the some of the bread and butter stuff that's effective, low risk, easy to use, uh, high result. And they're starting to make it part of their own personal martial art. Maybe not the, the art that they have their rank in, but they want to make it part of their repertoire. And I think arts are being affected as time goes on to start doing this more. Dojos will dojos have started doing it more. Instructors have starting to do it with their students. Um, and with that merger, I think keeping or instituting those those soft skills and awareness, using your eyes, uh, perception, escape, consideration of things like is somebody filming this? What's what's about to happen? Um, is going to be part of the the new the next evolution into martial arts, uh, or at least a portion of it. Not all of it. There's always going to be, you know, hardcore traditional type people. Um, there's always going to be the charlatans and the snake oil salesmen. I, I don't think martial arts is ever going to get rid of those people. Um, but what's going to be at the the leading evolution edge of of martial arts? Uh, I think is going to include those things because they are practical, they're useful. And I do think that there's a certain portion of the audience of that are looking for martial arts that do want practical skills. They're like, I'm out with my family. I want to make sure they don't get hurt. What do I need to know? Like th that's the question they're asking. Not so much. Can I be a Jet Li or can I be a, you know, pick your movie star martial artist, you know, my jo a John Wick or whatever. They just want to say, I, I don't want to get hurt. So what do I do? Who do I go to? So I think those are some of the messages. I think martial arts and dojos in the in the future will start shifting to, and I think some of them have. I think quite a few have started to pick up on those things. Maybe they're in the baby steps phase of it, but that's fine. It's better than you know saying, "Well, just punch somebody in the head really hard, and then your problems will be solved," or throat punch them, or you know whatever. Yeah. Well, I think I think John was um, quite accurate earlier on when he was saying about. <clears throat> excuse me, the different elements to fights and the legal side of it at the end and all. So, you know, I talk these days an awful lot about the digital witness. So if you remember um, the Jeff Thompson fence circa 1990s, um, mm -hmm. everybody, you know, everybody still teaches the fence from the 1990s. And it's like, this was before smartphones. This was before CCTV. This was before a lot of the technology has come through. So now when we look at it, the fundamentals apply. Of course they do but we've got to adapt it to the modern age. And everybody's going to whip out a camera now, simple as that. And if you know your 97 combination where you're going to, you know, whip somebody's eye out, bang their head off a wall, break their nose, all in the same go, you know, you're going to end up in prison. And how is that self-defense? Because you may have solved the problem in the initial moment, but, you know, who's going to but look back to the next problem. 10 years? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, all of these things are very, very relevant. And this is where I think there's, there, there is there is a divergence in regards to the different arts and there needs to be. Um, and I think it's more about sort of 
just people saying what it is that they do rather than so as you mentioned earlier if there's a if there's a, a sports school that that teaches sport that claims to be self-defense that's where i sometimes struggle because i'm like you know it, just be honest with what you teach be good at what you teach but be honest with what you teach and then that way people can make a more informed choice and so if you're looking for how is tradition going to stay alive which is fundamentally what we're discussing how are the traditional arts going to stay alive i think they, they need to you know they firmly keep the roots obviously but they need to be brought into the modern world as to how we live what the threats are how we do things you know where where are the threats these days so you could argue uh, perhaps that um you know cyber security should be considered a martial art these days because mm -hmm. we're more and more in the technical world and that's a very likely threat for all of us isn't it um mm -hmm. you know lots of people now are saying and i agree with this by the way um lots of people now are saying if you're young and you're fit and you want to get a good basis in self-defense learn parkour learn free running because that's a brilliant skill to have and if you know if i was 20 again i would definitely be doing that yes, me too so, definitely yeah. I, I've, I've said that if i if i wasn't so old and broken then i'd be jumping off the top of buildings all day <laughs> um, so so yeah so so i think that's fundamentally one of the things that we need to do is identify where the current threats are the real threats um and you know and then look at how we can adapt our training or modify our training or bring other things into our training to answer those questions mm -hmm. And so, you know, where what what is the likely things? That's the question, isn't it? What is likely these days? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, you made you made me think of my my last my last arrest in in the Met was was actually at the front gates <clears throat> of Downing Street, and, and yeah. London is the most CCTV rich environment in the world. Literally, you can't sneeze in London without being picked up on three cameras. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a guy actually came over the fence at the front gates of Downing Street, so he got put down on the floor cuffed stood up and as i stood him up there was just a wall of phones and ipods and everything because of course it was a tourist attraction isn't it down the street mm -hmm. so so the cabaret had started and i was <laughs> the cabaret um so everything was done spot on stood him up dusted him down had a little chat with him van turned up put him in the van and we reckoned that was on youtube before we booked him into custody mm. and that that is how how the world runs now yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's live now, isn't it? TikTok live and all of that. It's live yeah. right there and then. Yeah. All the security guards I train all, all have got body worn video cameras, which which they think makes them safer. And I'm because it's not connected to anything. It just records onto a, a memory card. So I have to tell them it doesn't actually make you any safer. It just records your death for posterity. Really, mm. um, that <laughs> they think oh, I'll put a camera on. Yeah that can actually aggravate people. It can actually make the situation worse by putting the camera on. So you've got to yeah. judge it. But this is the world we're in now where everything is being recorded and kept. And and now it's good recordings as well. It's not your VHS that has been you know, yeah. recorded over 150,000 times and rubbish. We've now got crystal clear stuff. So you have to be spot on with your techniques your your attitude your your conflict management it all has to be bang on the money because what you have 0.3 of a second to decide what to do a court has a year to pull apart yeah mm -hmm. they've got time to pull apart everything about your life and as your life is all online now if you're training if you train in a krav maga and all the pictures on your facebook are you doing doing this 
that is going to be thrown up by a prosecution. Mm-hmm. So all these things are so you know when when you look at your self defence, you have to look at your social media. You have to look at how you purport yourself in in this world, and you have to remember that social media is like putting photos up on a public notice board. Mm-hmm. Everybody can see that. Everybody can have access to them. Even if you go, oh no, it's only my friends. No, your friends and friends and friends and friends, and it will go out everywhere. Which is why when I was on the protection teams, we were told do not have any social media presence because they don't want it being you know, messed up by by some stupid remarks you put on Facebook 15 years ago that you're being judged for today. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the whole world now. This, this is where we're going. So it's not just going to a dojo and learning how to defend yourself. There's the whole the whole thing. Um, and, and yes, um, my my judo club way way back we used to do sport judo, but every so often we would do a self defence session, and it would be like next week we're doing self defence. So, mm-hmm. and it was purported as a self defence class, and funny enough, judo techniques, but in a self defence style. Um, and I think if if sport people are teaching self defence, they need to have all those bits we've discussed in it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're just doing sport in a, in a street environment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad. Yeah, this is a great topic. And this actually comes down to granularly how you train. And one of the things that I've started to evolve my training for is getting to points. I call them pause points, but they're not really. They're they're when you deal from a direct physical confrontation to getting a position where you can now reassess what needs to be done from there rather than going all the way from A to Z, which is from initial contact down to your full pin or your throw you might not by training in kata the way aikido typically does or a lot of arts will do this of okay here's an attack and now you you know hit grab throw chuck pin you go all the way to the finish you're building a program that just automatically runs well what happens if something in there changes what if a different person comes into into play while you're in the middle of it can you assess and and detach or change what you're doing or change what from a response that the person might might have and uh a great example of this and this was a video that i guess that i see mike did a couple of months ago seven months ago or so but i just saw it and i thought it was great he made a fantastic point and it was a video of him actually training they were going through a scenario and he had a, a guy in headgear and stuff that was the bad guy and and uh you know the attack happened and icy mike just starts laying into him and he takes him down and he's punching him and he's got the coach is like, somebody else just came here. Get up, get up, get up, get up. And Mike couldn't. He just kept pounding and pounding and pounding. And he said, and, you know, granted what I understand of Icy Mike's background, he this was a law, you know, I think he's now retired, but law enforcement officer. He has a lot of experience in real world violence. But he said, my training in sport, in MMA and sport fighting, reinforced so much. I have to continue dominating even when I've got somebody three feet away from me that's screaming, get back to your feet, get get up, get up, get up. I couldn't even do that. And he said that training reprogrammed me in a way that's that made suit a ring, but it does not necessarily suit the real world environment. And so I, w- I was thrilled to hear this because I think it's it is completely on point for how do you train? Do you train in such a way that you are prepared for all of the the craziness that can happen in a real world environment. And to me, one of those things is 
be able to reassess on the fly. Don't get stuck into these long programs of here's what I do, then I do this, then I do that. And your body's running on autopilot because then you're not seeing, you're not thinking, you're stuck into this, you're locked into your program and it might build some great technical skill. And I mean, like with Mike, he, he landed a lot of headshots on that poor guy in the headgear um, and got him down. But he probably would have gotten kicked in the head because he didn't see the, his buddy come up and, and nail him. And he, he admitted, openly admitted, like, this is because, it, you know, my MMA training doesn't adapt to any of that stuff. And I think good training for a civilian environment would need to include those things. Mm-hmm. While you're taking somebody down, be looking around, be circling so you can see other things coming. Maybe smile for the camera or one of the cameras while you're doing it, but you get a feel. Is this guy giving up or is he not? Is he resisting? And I found that when I train these sequences with these different options, I'll tell Uke, all right, sometimes you're passive. Like he totally gets the jump on you and you give up. Or maybe you get pissed off and you start to try to come back at him. Surprise Nage. He doesn't know, you know, but do something that makes him have to reassess, adapt, change, and keep his mind going through through this, not just let it stop and go, okay, run the program. So thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so um, for me, I think fundamentally we do have to appreciate that uh, competition fighting, sport fighting, combat sports, they have some great skill sets, physical mm-hmm. skill sets, no question, and they're great for the arenas that they're in. I mean, you know, sambo, judo, all of these things – a decent guy at a decent level with those sort of skill sets. If you let them grab you, I don't care what you wear and you're a bit knackered. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, when you look at that, Absolutely. those, that skill set, that physical level of, of ability, um, you, there's no denying that that is something that is built on a solid foundation of combat sports and practice and, and over and over again, you know, you drill that, you drill that, you drill that. And the, and the more you do the repetition, the more that you do that against non-compliant people, which is where the strengths come into combat sports is that non-compliant training, mm-hmm. you know, that embeds all of that. But I think where it falls down for me is, is the singular environment. So if you're training MMA, you train for an MMA cage. If you're a boxer, you train for a boxing ring. And, and I think that fundamentally is the critical switchover point where um you know what what i think for me the sweet spot is doing those physical skills in a combat kind of environment in a conditioned way like that so you get the high level skill set physically but then you can transition that over to various environments and locations and and different points in time and um and, and all that sort of thing because that's that's where i think your story highlights is that if you're in a one-on-one in a cage mentality, you are going to get caught out when his mates come over from the pool table and start kicking the heck out of you. You know, you are going to get, you are going to get left behind when you're trying to roll into your BJJ controls and somebody stabs the heck out of you, you know? Um, so yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's bringing all of these elements together, isn't it? It's being realistic of their strengths and their weaknesses and then mm-hmm. bringing them together. Um, that to me is the sweet spot. I, I, I mean, again, John, you've got some pretty solid real world experience on that. I mean, how did that work for you? The, uh, what, what certainly, certainly what Tristan said about somebody um, ground and pounding in, in a self-defense situation, UK law says 
every punch is covered by Section 3 of the Criminal Law Act, common law provisions in respect of self-defence and the European Convention of Human Rights. Every punch. You have to justify to, well, worst case scenario, to a judge and jury, um, every punch. And if you can't, then it, it, what a court will look for in this country is where it goes from legal detention or what you need to defend yourself, defend others, yeah, um, prevent crime or legally detain someone, where it goes from that to punishment, yeah, and that's where they draw the line. And anything past defending yourself, defending others, defending their property, your property, whatever, past that is now assault. And now that will get you sent to prison. So people who are training this self-defense thing that they're talking about and they're actually doing the ground and pound things, you go, well, yeah, very good, you've survived, but you're off now at his majesty's pleasure. It's very hard work, isn't it, saying his majesty, have you noticed? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Too many years of her majesty. Um, so, so if you're training in your self-defense and you are, as Matt says, doing one-on-one, -on -one, that's not right. That's not right. Um, long, long time ago, a friend of mine was killed outside a nightclub because he was a judo player and he was having a fight with a guy on top of him. Mate came in, kicked him in the head. He bounced off, hit his head on the corner of a curbstone and died because his whole self-defense world was judo. That was it. That was all he'd ever done. So he hadn't, and to be honest, back then we didn't. You know, self-defense was judo in a self-defense no. Yeah, that was the gold standard. Uh, not judo, but I mean the idea of you you facing one opponent at yeah. a time. I mean that was for a long time the the, the standard for martial arts. And, and we have ramped it up, and I know I'm, I know Matt does it because I've seen these videos where where you had someone come out of the you know you're defending yourself against someone, and someone else comes in, and, and we do that. We do that as instructors, and we throw in different things. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to, to do some training in Poland with Krav Maga and they do a thing called the City Extreme course <clears throat> and they take it out of the dojo. They literally, we did um, a morning in the dojo and then, and I was training with Grom as well, Polish Special Forces who are a big bunch of guys as well, terrifying. Um, and then we went out and we went on a coach and the coach drove off and then we started having a, a fight session on a coach. Then we got off a coach, got on a tram and went around the city of Łódź on a tram, having a fight session. And then we got off the tram and we went into a restaurant. It was Hooters, by the way. Um, yes. and, and we ordered dinner and then we had a fight session and then dinner came and then we stopped on it dinner and we carried on. So they take it out of that environment and put it in. And, and we ended up in a, in a nightclub, a, a closed nightclub that they'd hired. And they put the music on and got the smoke going and we had a, a training session in a nightclub so you wow. take it out of that safe padded room into mm -hmm. the environment now in poland they can do that because their health and safety regime is not as strict as it is in, in the uk <laughs> Matt and i would have a nightmare doing that over here because it would just be health and safety out of existence mm -hmm. but nobody got hurt because people were sensible, because they're your sensible training partners. If it looks like a bit dangerous, you just stop it and go, oh, yeah, you're okay, yeah, and carry on somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Because the sensible bit. But the problem we would have doing that sort of thing in this country is, is, is a nightmare because we wouldn't be allowed under the health and safety regulations. You know, our insurers would just go, no, no. Um, but 
what it the benefit of it was you now have to start thinking laterally you're not in this this safe padded room people very rarely get attacked in big padded rooms very rarely mm -hmm. um, um so so that, that i mean amazing training amazing to actually go out and do it in the real world and i'd love to do something like that over here um mm. uh which one oh God, i can't remember one of the krav maga guys actually does um uh sessions on a bus but it's a stationary bus hmm. they'll come back to me in a minute senior moment um but yeah to, to the ability to take these out out of that safe learning environment that, that we have our, our, our comfortable little dojos and actually doing it out in the real world is is brilliant hmm. um used to do quite a lot of police training um used to certainly when i was teaching at gatwick we used to take do scenarios in the morning in the dojo and then do the same scenarios with the same people out in in the airport terminal. Mm -hmm. We'd barrier it off. I'd have an a you know instructor tabard on, and it was all in in the dojo. Every scenario, you know, role play exercise ended in a fight. Out in mm -hmm. the terminal, none of them. They all use their conflict management skills. And I managed to turn it around because now we've got members of the public stopping and watching. Nice changes the way that you do things. Yeah, if you've now got members of the public. What witnesses, as we call them, it changes the way it works. So that was quite interesting to do. Um, you know, even with the limited uh, place that I had in my previous dojo, uh, I was fortunate to have a room that was entirely enclosed. There was no windows, so I could shut the lights off. Even doing the exact same techniques with the lights off or in very dim light conditions changed people's mindsets entirely. Um, when you can't see and you don't know and you can't easily identify attacks that are coming or or judge range very well even th that little variable changing mm -hmm. was a was a huge thing um and i kind of miss that the dojo i'm in now has got you know automatic lights that come on that i can't shut off so mm -hmm. it's hard to get that same feel of and it ramps anxiety up instantly mm -hmm. and i found it useful for teaching you know getting people comfortable with head covers and, and bringing their hands up when they when they keep their hands down in in the light as soon as it gets dark they bring their hands up automatically because they they know that it takes longer to see an attack coming and it'll be halfway there by the time you maybe pick it up yeah um, yeah uh, many years ago i was on a uh, i was on a course and it was essentially a lot of military style people and uh, we was doing some beach training and the instructor he said i want you all to find a, a pebble uh, and he picked up a pebble he went about this size that's what you want everyone find one Okay, right. Now, what I want you to do is put that in your shoe underneath your heel. And so we did. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, right, okay, let's carry on. Um, and we were doing some sparring, a lot of drilling, a lot of everything. But just having that little pebble underneath your heel in your shoe changed your balance, the way you moved, your everything was different. And it was such a, I, I'm talking about it to this day, all these years later. That's how influential it was. Um, nice. And it, yeah, just something as simple as that can make such a significant difference. And um, and it's always something that I find fascinating with the ability to change something so familiar just by doing something like, as you say, turning the lights off or flicking mm -hmm. the lights on and off or getting people to be in different clothing or, you yeah. know, any number of music. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, uh, and again, I think that's that's part of not only is it great for, you know, helping students, keeping them engaged and all the rest of it. So that helps retention and everything else. But. 
um, it's also great to, to actually give some depth to the understanding of what you're doing, you know, um, mm -hmm. and to have people play with it in different things because it shows up so many shortcomings as well. You know, you, how, how many of you seen people like super confidence with a fake knife and they've run right. through techniques and all of a sudden they think the buddy's Zorro and you give them a real one and all of a sudden boom, there's six foot between them again, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, my instructor years ago picked up one of those shock knives that crackles, mm -hmm. you know, and you, crackle that thing and all of that confidence against a wooden or a rubber knife disappears instantly mm. um the adrenaline starts to pump and they their body behaves differently mm. um, we, we used to train with those in the met and and the language in the room is appealing where everyone the knives bite it's just appalling language it's hilarious yep <laughs> it is pretty funny and that kind of brings me to the point one of the things i wanted to discuss today which is having training shifting more towards live play, active learning, uh, these different variable changes. I've seen students really enjoy that part. They like it. Um, I think there's been kind of a, a resistance from a lot of instructors and senior instructors and dojo chose for doing that because it, it seems easy to teach katas and formula, static forms, um, it's easy to do that. And it's easy to do that with anybody who walks in the door, whether they're athletic, not athletic, they're, you know, maybe low mental engagement or low interest. It's kind of a cookie cutter method of teaching. Whereas with live play, you really as an instructor have to manage that well. You have to apply it well. You you want to put your students into, into situations and scenarios that are not so far over their head they get overwhelmed, but are not so simple and anemic that they get bored. And that's a challenge. But I think training, and one of the reasons I think Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has gotten so popular is they have included that live play aspect into their training because they're they're a sport art. So that leads me to another question. But for the for the moment, I just want to discuss how active training and live training I think is going to be a part of the next evolution of, of martial arts and those arts that don't do any of it or do very little of it i think are gonna are gonna die out with with lack of interest what do you guys think about that the i mean certainly the brazilian jiu-jitsu judo sambo the the grappling arts have the advantage that you can train with a fully resisting opponent mm -hmm. yeah you, you can you can that's the blessing of the sport, right? Right, the right skill level. You can train, but you, you can't do that with boxing. You can't do that with, with with any sort of impact, because that's when people get hurt. But but certainly the grappling arts, you can you can you can go full on if you and your partner are willing. Shall we shall we go for it? Yeah, let's go for it. It's and it's fun. The when it when it comes to to scenario based training, if you want live or pressure testing, is that a phrase? You're, you're yeah, it's a really common phrase. Yeah. Um, the, the the pressure test has got to be done at, at the right time in in the student's progression because mm -hmm. if you do that on week one, bye, you never see me again. No. And um, I, and I think you could say that boxing or Muay Thai, kickboxing, all have a, that similar approach. Yes, there is a full contact aspect yeah. to the sport, but it, they don't do that every practice or every no. every class. No, no, no. The, the the sparring, isn't it? It's the, mm -hmm. the, the sparring sessions. Um, the the end of the national, the police national bodyguard course. We used to we used to run a thing called performance under pressure, um, and we would have three or four guys in full red band suits or fist suits, and one poor bugger. 
And he would have to, firstly, he would have to fight his way out of the corner, fight out from three or four of his suits out, mm -hmm. fight along a wall, and then he would have to strip down a Glock, mm. reload it, put it back together, and then he would have hands to are shaking and from the adrenaline. Pick up, pick up a VIP, take him for a walk, and all this time the, the guys in the red man suits are attacking him. Yeah, so he has to fight them off. Then he has to go and do CPR. Firstly, put the rubber gloves on, do CPR. And the whole point of it was almost to get across to them what you can and can't do, fine motor skills, gross motor skills, complex, the motor skills that you can and can't do. And we had people who were amazing. They just fought, you know, spent a good two or three minutes fighting guys in big padded suits. And then they just put rubber gloves on and do CPR. I go, how the hell did you do that? And we always made sure it was the smallest latex gloves in the world, the tiny little Of course, yeah. Yeah. That they're just firing over the room, but <laughs> it, it, it was eye-opening to a lot of people to see how their skills degrade the as, as the tighter they get, the more you know, the more physicality they have to put in it, and, and, and that that's more of the learning point of those sort of things is is what happens to your amazing skill level that is fantastic when you're doing cutter, when you're doing sparring, when you, you know, when you're dancing around the dojo, looking amazing. The minute you put them under pressure, what happens to that skill level? And it's, it's they need to understand that to be able to transpose their martial arts skills to a, a real-life scenario. That, that bits are going to fall off. It's going to go wrong. It's going to be horrible and ugly and messy. And they need to understand that it's not like it is in the movies. It's Nobody is slick as John Wick ever. Right. <laughs> um, shame, but no, it doesn't work, does it? Oh, Every time I see martial art movies and stuff, I say, if only fighting were really like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, there's, I mean, there's live arts and dead arts, aren't there? And that's fundamentally one of the, the, the separations is. Um, so when you talk about live arts, such as you mentioned, judo, BJJ, Thai, that sort of thing, where people are actively working with non-compliant people, um, there's always going to be an element of that, which is, uh, which is which is going to encourage certain types of people, but then your sort of your dead arts. Uh, and again, I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but mm -hmm. um, people would would put karate and, and, and aikido as well into those categories mm -hmm. um, because it doesn't appear to have that that same non-compliant partner work, you know, with the free sparring and things. Um, and and so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of talk about that, and and that being the main reason why that there's no. Uh, there is no non-compliance free sparring within things like Aikido and stuff. And they're, and they're suggesting that maybe that's why it's not as popular as it once was. Um, I, I don't know whether that's that that's true or not. Um, I, I'm really not sure. But when you look at the modern equivalent, you talked, you mentioned the word pressure testing. Pressure testing for me is such a funny thing. I've been on so many sort of crab courses and different elements of crab and different types of crab over the years. You know, I, I sort of got on the... Uh, on the on the on the sort of crab train when it first came over to the UK, I was fascinated by it and the roughness of it and everything. So of course it was something that I was intrigued by. And at that stage in life, it fitted the bill very nicely, um, especially with all the security work and close protection and stuff as well. It was, you know, it was a match made in heaven. Um, but over the years, that's it's turned into this weird soccer mum version of things. A lot of it has, mm. and and you've got this what they call a pressure test, and it's it's almost anything but. Um, and, and so again, it's 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 where that lives within the sort of realms of of what your version of a pressure test is, because I've seen pressure tests that, quite frankly, 
Um, you know, my, my six-year-old niece could handle quite easily. Um, but then I've also seen pressure tests that you you could only describe as, well, assault. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything in between. So right. yeah, I, 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 again, it's such a complicated beast, isn't it? Because you want to, you definitely want to be able to give the person real skills, the students real skills, and, and and an ability to be able to perform under pressure. But how, where is the line on that? How do you do that? That like, it's a genuine yeah. question. Yeah, well, it's, it's individual, isn't it? A pressure testing is individual. I think it, it's it's down to the individual student. Certainly, when we were running the performance under pressure with um, the police, yeah, we had some fit guys that we had to really, really work hard to get them knackered. Whereas mm -hmm. not so fit guys, we didn't have to go so hard on them because they, they hit that point. Uh, um, the idea of, of that performance under pressure came, funnily enough, came out of my um, um, Aikido black belt test, having having been through the card and done all the, you know, people shouting Japanese words at me and I had to perform the Japanese word. Um, my actual black belt test was done at the end of a day's seminar. So I was already knackered and they just wanted to see what I could do when I had nothing, nothing in the tank. That to me was, was a pressure test. I'm knackered. What can I do? Not much, two or three techniques and, and just keep moving. And they said, perfect. That's what we want to see. Two or three techniques and keep moving. That, you, I passed. Um, but I think a pressure test is an individual thing. And certainly some of the, yeah, I've, I've been through some of the horrific Krav Maga and Kapap pressure tests. And you think, I can't, you, you need to be able to win a pressure test, don't you? If you're not winning a pressure test, then you're just getting beaten, really, aren't you? They just keep going until, until you give up. Um, but what's the, what's the learning outcome of, of that? So you have to look at what is the learning outcome of this pressure test? Yeah, are we... What are, we, what are we doing with it? Are we, are we just making people go, oh, right, I'm knackered now? Or what? So, yeah. Yeah, well, there was there was this there was this this course I used to do a couple of times, and they were um, ex-Israeli military people. Um, they're sort of the, the uh, our equivalent to sort of special forces. And, um, and, and, I, and I did some training with them a couple of times, and they were very interesting people because they, they did this course, but they had it set up where for the first day, all they would do is beast you. And when I say beast you, I mean put you through the ringer. Um, things that would be considered illegal, you know, real unpleasant things. Um, plus all the physical beasting, the mental beasting. Uh, and it was just crazy. And But you'd see this huge dropout. And they did it. And they did it on purpose for that reason. Because they basically just wanted all the people that weren't mentally or physically strong enough to get through the day to just bugger off early and stop wasting their time. You know, they didn't want to put any more effort into them. Um, mm. But, but that was, that was always something again that stuck in my mind because I did it. I did it. I did a few of those and I'd have to go through it every blooming time. It's not like you could do one and then they're like, Oh, okay. It's only Matt again. You know, he's fine. He's already done it. You had to do it every single time. And, and the people that would drop out, it was extraordinary. They, you'd get some that would actually just sort of acknowledge it and say, look, this is too much. I'm going. But more often than not, what would happen? There'd be a five-minute sort of wee break or grab a banana or something, and people would just scuttle off, <laughs> never to be seen again. Um, yeah, I, I, it's fascinating. But that was used for the other side of the coin, you know. So instead of trying to build them up, that was actually trying to filter out people and say, right, well, you know, you guys aren't worth our effort. Go away. Um, so, yeah, different different side of the same coin. 
Yeah, I you know, in terms of that. pressure testing, I just want to jump in with one real quick here, and that is that, you know, I know that there's there has been in the last few years a bunch of interest from all kinds of different martial artists that say, you know, I do want to find out well, how would my art perform if I would if I had to deal with a high level of resistance or or um, vigor that was focused at me, because they come from an art that you know, like a lot of Aikido does where they practice at, you know, the five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour with the car. It's very easy, slow, smooth, not much resistance, if any, not much pressure, if any, not much complexity of the attack, if any, no uke follow through with a second attack or trying to escape. That really doesn't ever happen. But then they go, well, I want to, I want to, I'm curious. So then they say, well, let's ramp this up to, you know, 80 miles an hour. And, and, in my opinion, a better way to go is to go, all right, try it at 20 miles an hour. Try it at 30 miles an hour. Is it starting to break down? Oh, it's still going well. All right, now bump it up to 40 or 50 miles an hour before you just totally get cranked on by somebody. And because it's so far out of the realm of your normal practice. Um, and and I think that it, that's at least a healthy way to get a gauge of what, what it is you're doing. Like, when does it start to break down? If it breaks down at 15 miles an hour, you know, you got a lot of work to do before you're ready to try something faster, harder, more intense. Um, you know, and you can argue up at the high ends of, well, you know, I don't want to throw anybody and kill them. It's like, sorry, if you're doing 10, 20 miles an hour, you're not going to gonna kill anybody. But if you think you do, now it's a reality check. Is like, is, there, is this your overconfidence speaking? Is this, you know, your imaginary whatever you think your art is or your skills are is way off of what it really is. Um, I think it's a good reality check. And, you know, for those that will say, well, you know, Aikido's knife defenses are really good. You know, try the marker drill. That'll there, that you can go 80 miles an hour with and find out just how much or really how little uh, applicable skills there are with what Aikido has up and you know, contemporary Aikido tends to do with things like knife disarms, knife defenses, stuff like that. Um, but, but I, I, for everyone who thinks or entertains the idea of saying, you know what, I do want to kick it up a little bit. I want to find out if I'm in the delusional world or if I'm in the real world, I applaud that. I think that that's, it will be humbling. Um, but if you don't, you got to wonder where, where it is you're living, where your, where your martial art realm is. And <laughs> I think kind of coming back to the point of the whole podcast is I think that the general audience of people that are thinking about maybe doing martial arts or are, do want to do martial arts or get into them, I believe there is less patience for just pure theory that has no basis in actual provable, repeatable results. And they don't, they, don't, they have no patience for cults and like personality based arts that are, you know, be like this movie star or be like that, you know, revered cult leader or, you know, some guy that's been dead for 50 years or something because he was so awesome. I think that stuff is kind of dying out. Um, you know. Well, if, if you, I mean, if you look at what's popular these days, you've got obviously the huge explosion of BJJ after, uh, after mm -hmm. the UFC and, and that, and that's been managed on a worldwide scale um, that is just mm -hmm. phenomenal, you know, that spread. And of course that's just a marketing genius and huge mm -hmm. business acumen and, and, uh, but it's also, don't get me wrong, a fantastic skill set. So I'm not knocking that, um, yeah. but they very much come to the fore. MMA again, because of what it is, is done very well when we look at that. So you've got those kind of elements to it, but then you've also got um, 
as I mentioned off air, we talked for five minutes and was talking about the, um, you know, the family friendly franchise model, which is it's sweeping across the UK now. It's I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's been in America and things for a long time, which it has. But it, it's it's sweeping across the UK now where you're having essentially just franchise models and it's drag and drop. Boom, and we'll drop that in this time. We'll drop it in this time. It's exactly the same thing. And it's, you know, you can have a four-year-old and a 40-year-old training together on the mats and nobody's got any risk of injury. I'm not sure how martial that is, if I'm being honest. However, it's something that um, obviously fulfills a need because it wouldn't be popular otherwise. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's something that's really overtaking. You know, you're looking at um, most small towns. They have you know a, a local instructor, if you like, that teaches whatever art that they teach, and mm-hmm. they're being superseded all over the country by these by these models. And um, and again, that's what we've got to compete with. That's that's what the local schools have to compete with. That's what traditional martial arts has to um, you know has to stand up against. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really something that so so we've really got to look at them, and look at what they're doing, and say, well, how, what can we, what's what's working with that, and what can we take from that that we can use ourselves? I think that's really one of the things. Rather than pointing at it and saying that's all wrong, mm-hmm. um, what is it that they're you know what is it that's so um, enticing about what it is that they do? You know, that's what we need to understand. So that's my question for you guys. What is it do you think that is so enticing about? this modern way of doing things with these systems that uh, is grabbing the the zeitgeist of the moment then uh, I, I yes i know where you're where you're coming from with the, the family friendly franchises and um i i've noticed that people don't stay there long there's a, it, it's a very very good start point for people because certainly mm. when we had the the mma gym lots of people come to us and say Oh yeah, I trained for a few years in this. It piqued my interest in martial arts, and, and then, uh, without sounding awful, now I want to try a real one. So they move. They, it's a, it's a brilliant way of opening the doors to these people. They get the idea of what martial art training is, hmm. and then they go and train in a real one. Um, a lot of them go on to do things like Muay Thai and stuff like that. that but it's it's a, a very very good starting point, and it is. Um, if you like burgers, you go to McDonald's. I really like burgers, so let's go to a proper burger. You know, a burger place. It, it leads on, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, people tend not to be there long because because the, the realization is, is uh, yeah, th- this is not what I thought it was going to be. It's a martial art, but it's not necessarily what I imagined a martial art to be. So they tend to move quite quickly through and a lot of them are are very very money orientated they're, they're very very joining fee by the uniform by the belt gr- loads of gradings and you have to pay for a lot of the gradings because that, that, they're a franchise they're a business yeah and that, that they have a, a very very good business model we, we're going to do yeah five or six gradings a year cost you 30 quid a time boom, 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 boom. you you chunk through the gradings. so their their business model is the driving thing so um mac you you said that you're, you're not in this for the money <laughs> um yeah i'm i'm now no longer i was for a while in it for the money and it's very difficult very very difficult to, to run mm-hmm. into the money so now i'm 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 building something that will just be a hobby and and if it pays for itself hey <laughs> fantastic um 
but these these organisations, these franchises are money orientated. They are business orientated. So they're coming with a business model and how do we fit? How do we supply what we need to supply to, to fulfil that business model? And that's where that's their driving force, which is why they have lots of things. But people tend to go in and then, especially parents, have a realisation of how much is this costing me? <laughs> um, and then they go right, okay, and then we'll look, we'll move on. To something else so it's a very very good starting point but that that tends to be the, the, the drop-off that they, they that's why they are always advertising for new students because there is a very high drop-off rate yeah those are some excellent observations now my answer to that question is i think the there is a blurring of the line between martial arts training and entertainment if you think about it where does where does the awareness of these martial arts styles or instructors or you know incredible martial art heroes come from it comes from either the movies or sport fighting both of which are entertainment when a movie comes out like john wick that's a multi-million dollar martial art commercial if you break it down mm. same thing with you watch and i'm not up on the latest ufc guys or whatever but you watch a conor mcgregor who is this huge media star his name is all over the place. Videos are all over the place. They see fights get won by him or other, you know, John Jones or, you know, who, whomever. And they go, I want to be like that because he's a champion. That's where that initial splash gets made. And the same thing with movies about you can look when, when martial arts surged. Usually there's a movie star that comes out that his art is featured in a film and it generates a huge wave of interest. And then that kind of dies down. Then another one comes on. It's a different art. And that gets, a, you know, C-Lot went through that. Aikido did. Um, Wing Chun did. Um, what was the, uh, I think Jeff Speakman. There are all kinds of Kali, oh, all yeah. kinds of different arts have surged based on a huge entertainment wave. And when I look at what dojos do, because they don't have multi-million dollar budgets for really cool promotional films, they come out looking kind of lame because your eye gets used to seeing John Wick and then it sees, you know, John the karate guy with his couple of students in his dojo and a camera filming a, a promo and you go, well, that looks lame compared to Keanu Reeves over here. So it's a level of sophistication of marketing that is that is not, I don't see it's possible for for actual practical martial arts to have. And nor would I see that practical martial art reflected in a movie, TV series, some kind of film, you're certainly not going to see it in a sport realm because they don't have all those ingredients like we've talked about earlier of situational awareness, eye contact, you know, managing a, a confrontation, sneak attacks, you know, all of that stuff has been removed. So real fighting, as you guys well know, is not entertaining. It's not fun to watch. It's ugly. It's hideous. Um, it's usually over quickly. I mean, I, I give it to sport for having figured out a hundred years ago that if you had a, a, a boxing match that was over in 12 seconds, it would not be very popular. You people want to watch extended long-term, you know, longer term fights. And I realized Mike Tyson was a bit of an exception for that because, you know, he brought in a lot of big ticket, mostly because boxing had already grown by that point, by that point, it had flushed out what are, 12 round and 15 round bouts they want to see a chess match between a couple of masters not kaboom and it's over and so i i think that there's that challenge that exists but i i really like john your point of almost looking at what they're seeing like a funnel okay they go and see a john wick 
they go into a dojo that you know and they they don't get what they were what they were hoping for and by the way that would describe steven seagal and aikido all day long of how many people came into aikido thinking that's what i want to be and then they go and train for a year a couple of years and be like this isn't what i got at all totally different and then they go and seek something else um i think that trying to be that whole funnel from publicity all the way to delivery is a problem i don't see any dojo or any individual that could be all that even bruce lee couldn't do it you know he he ran a dojo but you know he he was making films he couldn't do he can juggle all that stuff in the air and, and keep it effectively going i think he had to, to to uh bring other people in to help you know uh you know mitigate his time he, he had to had to juggle around so i think nowadays it would be very very hard to do that and if and if somebody did do it really what they are doing is making their own cult of personality like all movie stars tend to do get a get a following and then throw them into their marketing machine or into their you know their multi-level dojo or whatever it would be to say you know go to these instructors that i've trained and i'm going to go over here and make my next movie and you go pay my organization over on that end well, I think you've just described Gracie Jiu Jitsu, but uh, but change movie for UFC and Pride. Um, right. Yep, <laughs> yep, that's right. But, but that's that's essentially what they did and how they did it, isn't it? And mm -hmm. that's the, um, you know, that's the sort of story in the model. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and credit from a business standpoint, it was an, a very effective, uh, lucrative endeavor. Uh, and I did find something. I was fascinated by this to find out that the Gracie family, before they got into martial arts back in the, in the last middle of last century or last century, their family were circus promoters. Yeah. So they, right. they came from a business of promoting a product mm -hmm. and promoting entertainment. They knew the chops. They knew the formula of how to do those things, how to appeal. And they followed that formula and that's what made them really great. And, and here's where I give the Gracies the greatest props. They, in the 60s, did what almost no other martial art was doing, which was trying to prove itself in a real real fighting type of a realm. Mm. And, and I'll give them great props for that um, because so few were doing that. Even Bruce Lee wasn't really doing that. He wasn't going out and saying, hey, come to my garage and kick my ass. Mm. You know, and I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give it to the Gracies. Like, that was, that really forced them to shore their art up and make it effective. Mm. And now there's there's a caveat to that. And I think this is something that has not served Gracie Jiu-Jitsu up until the 90s or so, or after about the 90s, when because they trained primarily against other martial artists who had zero exposure to grappling or groundwork. None. That's That is a mismatch. After the 90s, and the awareness was, if you didn't have groundwork and the ability to handle grappling, you had a big hole in your martial art. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have an idea of how to handle grappling, the supposition that they had back in the 60s and 70s of, we're, we're going to use grappling because nobody knows how to deal with it, and we'll be able to dominate the people easily because they have no idea what grappling is or how to do it or how to deal with it. Now, the, the landscape has changed, and they're operating on on a battlefield that was defined at the time, but it's not that way anymore. Mm. Um, yes. so yeah. Yeah. Well, to say, to say something just a little bit cheeky, isn't it surprising that since the 
uh, explosion of, of jiu-jitsu overall, how we've all suddenly found grappling in the Carters that wasn't there in the 80s. Um. Yes. The, aware, the overall awareness is rising. And I'll give it to the Gracies for kind of opening the door for that awareness to rise. That, to yeah, their of course. Credit. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, when you say that everybody had to up their game, they had to up their game because... Yes. We, everyone was forced to because of it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've got you know I've got huge respect for what they've done and how they've done it. And uh, um, obviously there are things I don't necessarily agree with about them in regards to how they um, you know claim it to be a complete self defense system. I, I would argue with that slightly, but um, there's absolutely no question whatsoever that there. That are, could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, it, it could, but um, yeah. you know I, I'm uh, given their history of challenge matches and things. I'm very reluctant to say anything negative because <laughs> I'm way past them days now. And it's kind of one of those water under the bridge. <laughs> like at this point, it's almost to the dead horse category. Maybe not quite, but, you know, yeah, um, well, but even the, um, it comes into that evolution of what we're talking about. This is how yeah, martial arts have yeah. evolved and are still evolving. Yeah, yeah. Well, the um, you take the I'm going to call them the original Gracie's just I don't. But the original um, ones that came to. Uh, prominence with through the UFC and pride and things, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, by their own recognition now, they're saying that jujitsu has morphed into something again that's completely different. That's true. To what, yeah. what they did during those days that you're talking about with the challenges mm -hmm. and stuff, because mm -hmm. you know that's not normal now. That's not that's not what jujitsu guys do now as a general mm -hmm. rule of thumb. And so that period of time has now changed. And and as we talked about evolution, as we're talking about evolution, you know, that again, that's a that's a very prime example because what you see now and what they say now is that BJJ is far more complicated than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And there's a much wider sort of complexity to the technique and to everything else. I mean, I just dip my toe into that. I don't proclaim to have any uh, working knowledge of it other than, um, like I said, dipping my toe in and playing with it. So I don't pretend to know everything. But it's, sure. it is fascinating to see that journey and how they've progressed. Because, And this is my point. Sorry, it's a bit long-winded, but this is my point. When you look at their journey, we can see it in our lifetime. We can see it unfolding right through, you know, through the early 90s, right through to where we are today. Now, if you then say, right, well, this is BJJ. Let's let's have a parallel with karate, with Aikido, with whatever art you want to put. Mm -hmm. Let's put that on the same timeline and let's see their progression and what they're doing to progress and how they have morphed into something that's relevant to the modern age. You know how they've kept up. And can we say that about the about some of the other arts? I think that's the core question, isn't it? Can we can we point that finger at Aikido mm -hmm. as an example, and they can show that progression through the years, or are they still stuck in this dogma? I'm going to call it, for want of a better word, um, you know. And, and 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 if so, why? Right. You know, I, I think. Oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, the, the, I, uh, certainly speaking from Aikido, there, there's a few of us trying to drag it into the modern day. But um, mm -hmm. uh, Tristan and I, Steve, Steve up north of Hadrian's Wall, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to, but but it, there's a lot of resistance. Um, mm -hmm. oh, something I, I, I meant to tell you, um, the uh, British Aikido board have, have the, one of the top guys there is actually going to support me in promoting a new one well, new style it's not a new style of aikido but you know supporting me so I, I may be being backed by by a national body in aikido oh to, to, awesome 
to actually take it. Yeah, I had a long, long chat on the phone with him, and um, he said, yeah, yeah, you're going to get some resistance, uh, but he's going to back me. So there, there is a want for it, should we say, mm -hmm. but there is also an awful lot of resistance, and this is where the divergence is going to happen, isn't yeah, it? Sure. Because if people want to train in traditional karate um, and Aikido and, and traditional, fine. Go and do it, but they, they, we should, they should be given the option to modernise their art if they want to. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's all about giving people what they want, because some people are quite, they're, they're, they're quite happy to do the, the traditional, it's not traditional, because Yushiba said Aikido should evolve, and it hasn't, it's, mm -hmm. it's stopped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Possibly on the day of his death, boff, mm -hmm. it's not changing anymore. Um, <laughs> but, but he said it should be evolving all the time so he he had his eye on the future um mm -hmm. but a lot of people have stuck at that point you know um, you know i i would also argue too that that any living thing and a martial art to me is a living thing is either growing or it's dying you can't just hold it in space where it was if you try you're basically trying to make a xerox copy of a xerox copy of a xerox copy mm -hmm. and the signal degradation yeah. will just will will happen yeah or it's growing and and you won't you can't even won't even be able to get to a hundred percent of the practitioners of that art being growing some of them will will decline and and, and some will evolve what i think is going to happen here and, I, and i'm sorry we're noticing the time we're around like an hour and 40 minutes which is, this is a great discussion time is flying <laughs> like crazy um but you're going to see the separation of those people that want to grow their art grow their grow i should say grow themselves and in doing so they will grow the art that they do then you will see the others that will you know clutch their pearls and they don't want to, they want to do things the way they thought you know Uche, uh, Morhai did them which they're not but they don't know that or they think that they think that and they're incorrect um that that's just going to continue to go down and i think the numbers of participants the, the average age of Aikido participants, for example, reflects that. And I don't think that that's entirely unique to Aikido. I think a lot of the uh, traditional karate is going through similar things. Um, the, now the dojos that teach children have got, that's their golden egg, uh, goose that lays the golden egg. And But for adult students, um, I think that that's, mm -hmm. it's modernized and be able to be uh, relevant to the modern world, or you're going to just go on the slide. Um, yeah. Kind of think that's the way know, things are. Has, has, has evolved, but mm -hmm. not because of the Olympics, because of the rule set. They've, mm -hmm. they've changed the rules. Judo is now com not not completely different, but vastly different from when I was training in it, because mm -hmm. the Olympics have changed the rule set of it. Um, that's a factor too. Yeah. More entertaining, I would guess. That's what's mm -hmm. Taekwondo. If you look at if you look at Taekwondo and then the Taekwondo in the Olympics, mm -hmm. it's it's changed. It's evolved. Not mm -hmm. probably not for the better, but but it, it hasn't because of the rule set has changed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these sport arts will will change because the, the rules will change. That what you can and can't yeah. do, what you're allowed to do, what what's the scoring points, and all these sort of things mm -hmm. um, will evolve. But self defense is only going to evolve if we evolve it really that's <laughs> and, true it's up to us each one of us here to do it yeah it's, um... mm -hmm. so again going back to what i was saying there a moment ago i mean with regards um just quickly john what you're saying there about the taekwondo and stuff that is something that we looked at in the book that uh, i co-wrote and, and and it is to do with the rule sets and it is to do with the medium that it's presented through because 
um, where it's televised, it has to appeal to the television, which includes, by the way, adverts and things. You'd be amazed how many competitions are set up to fit into the advert schedule. Um, mm. So, <laughs> And that's the entertainment influence, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But back to what I was saying a moment ago, when we look at, I'm picking on jujitsu a little bit, not because I'm picking on, because it's a good case study. Um, you know, when we look at jujitsu over the years, it's bounced itself off all these other arts. It's bounced itself and, and, and taken itself out to the world and went, well, let's, how does it work with this? How does it work with that? How does it work with that? And so it's, you know, it's, it's been, if you like, forged on the fire of adversity by doing these things. And, mm -hmm. um, and now it seems to be going back inside itself there seems to now be uh jujitsu overall does seem to be coming more insular again with jujitsu against jujitsu kind of thing and again not saying right or wrong but that's a journey that i haven't seen within aikido because we're talking about aikido mm -hmm. it, it it doesn't have ever really seemed to have gone outside of itself um and show, i'm going to be careful i say this but uh sort of learn the lessons if you will mm-hmm um, and again, is that something that is, am I right in saying that or am I just misrepresenting? This is, this is what I want to do with it. I, I want mm -hmm. to take Aikido and and teach it as in with, with the Krav Maga flavor. Mm -hmm. So I want the Aikido skills, but I want it in a, in a, in a Krav Maga style of, of training environment with, with the head guards mm -hmm. and people flying punches at you, not the, not this yep. stuff, proper, mm -hmm. you know, proper street level and i want to get to the point where i'm pressure testing it like we would pressure test a, a, a crap my god mm -hmm. but, but but the the skills the theory the the um, ethos of aikido in there yeah so i want to take it out of it of its um um traditional japanese as, as tristan says the um the samurai cosplay <laughs> world <laughs> Yep. And, and put it in a modern environment. So this is this is the plan for it. And, mm -hmm. and certainly now I'm getting sort of the backing of the, the national organisation or one person from the national organisation, should I say. Mm -hmm. sure. um, it, it's, it's quite a big boost. It's quite a big boost. So, so yeah, watch, watch this space. This is what we want to do. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm well aware that a lot of the syllabus will fall by the wayside mm -hmm. um, for some people. Yeah, hmm. Well, if I, can, if I can be any help in that, do let me know. It's um, yeah. it seems like an intriguing, yeah. intriguing process. I'm going to say you're only down the road, but you're, um, you're, you're three hours away. On oh, it's day. not that far these days, is it? Uh, yeah, talk, to <laughs> Trist, talk to Tristan. That's not far at all. You got that? Yeah. <laughs> that barely gets me to Iowa. <laughs> so um, yeah, so again, for me, it's 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 interesting with regards to when you're saying about. Um, you know, how do we modernize? How do we market? How do we become relevant and all these sorts of things? And I don't think it's possible if if we just stay within our own bubble. I think we need outside influences. It's healthy. Um, but it's how it's how we can do that, isn't it? I don't think we have to bastardize what we do. I don't think we have to sell it out. But no, I, do, I, agree. I, I do think that we need those outside influences to grow and develop. And, and it's where we take those from really, isn't it? And it's okay. how, um, it's how those things come about. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me because I, I, I teach all kinds of people in all kinds of walks of life and I teach all kinds of different styles as well, different types of martial artists. Right. And I always find it fascinating when they're like, Oh, we do that. Or, Oh, that's in what I do. And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, but the principles are in everything. That's why they're principles, you know, mm -hmm. There's there's a similarity right across the board, and once we can acknowledge that, 
and that's where the bridges start to be built as opposed to you know you're over there like you're not like us <laughs> and that's what we need isn't it more bridge building i think absolutely i couldn't have, couldn't have said that more in fact it's a great wrap-up point of you know how do we learn from one another and get those practical skills because i've yet to find a martial art that does not have some gold in it their bread and butter stuff there is some absolute fantastic stuff in there i find i have to sift usually quite a bit because there's you know every art's gotten complicated stuff that is kind of convoluted doesn't work too well and it fails very frequently and you got to be super good to get it to work but most of the every like i said every art has got a few things that are just boy it does fantastic and I, that's the stuff i really love to find and that's why i like those bridges the um i i saw um do you remember the, the movie 300 when mm -hmm. gerald butler kicks the bloke down the well that famous mm -hmm. thing yeah this is smart apple there was an argument on on one of the facebook things people were actually arguing over what kick that was who owned that kick was it <laughs> oh, god bless oh. online arguments <laughs> <laughs> um yeah stop trying to claim everything it's a right. kick and I, I remember this from years ago where people were saying you know oh that's a muay thai kick it's a taekwondo mm -hmm. kick it's a karate kick it's just a somebody hoofing somebody with their fur yeah. Stop trying to claim it. It's all out there. It's all that, that kick goes back beyond ancient Greece. So go yeah. ahead and try to try to figure out who owns that thing. Well, I don't know why you're arguing about it because Steven Seagal taught that to Anderson Silva. We all know <laughs> that's what that is. <laughs> well, there's our definitive source right there. <laughs> all um, right. Yes, well, thank you very much, guys. Uh, this has been a great discussion. I wish I had another couple of hours to, to do more of this. Um, I don't even think we've touched on on everything or, or exhausted our, our knowledge on on this or opinions on this subject. But um, thank you guys for both coming. I really sure. appreciate it. It's been a great discussion. Can't wait to hear what comments people have back from it. I know I've gotten some good positive stuff from both of you guys when you come on the show. So um, anything you want to wrap up with real quickly? No, it's good to be here. It's mm -hmm. nice to, to actually finally speak to my close personal friend, Matt. Who's <laughs> I've never actually spoken to before, um, <laughs> but we well, are nice. personal friends. Yeah, well, very nice to talk to you, John, as well. And I'm sure we'll speak more now. That's Absolutely. for sure. Because, yes. uh, yeah. So again, yeah. thank you for the uh, for the invitation and the, and the conversation is always good. And um, yeah, I think this is a topic that is never ending, isn't it? There's, there's always more mm -hmm. to add to this. Yep. Well, this won't be the first two UK people I've introduced from Minnesota, <laughs> from where <laughs> I'm at. Um, so, yeah, I just want to say thanks again. Um, you know, looking forward to another discussion. I also wanted to say, too, for those people that have been missing my podcast, the holidays were kind of crazy with all kinds of things going on in the new year. Now things are getting kind of ramped up. I'm looking to do some more frequent podcasting and, and interviews and stuff. So a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, and uh, we'll be here. So stay tuned for the next one. And in the meantime, thank you, guys. It was great having you on. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.